um, and we're going to start, we're going to be in Esther 4, and I'm going to read a lot of it, and by a lot of it, I mean all of it, all of chapter 4. So you can go ahead and turn there if you want, but before we start reading that, what I want to do is I want to take a moment and just sort of recap, because this is a pretty big story, um, and as a story, it's important that you remember everything along the way, and so... We're sitting in this narrative, and what Kyle tried really hard to do last week was to get you into this and try to start to get you to rethink the story that you may uh, have conceived in your mind or in your head. Uh, many of you have probably seen the VeggieTales uh, reenactment of Esther. If not, uh, go watch it. It's good, you know, but it's a sweet cucumber or asparagus. I forget. She's an asparagus, yeah, that's right. So anyways, uh, there is a way in which we, we've understood Esther as a Sunday morning kid story in a lot of ways. Or as Kyle said, uh, a lot of times it's not preached on Sunday mornings. There's not a lot of series. If you go and like search you know, podcasts and all of that, there's not a lot of that taking place. But there are, for you women, a whole lot of women's retreats and Sunday morning classes. You know, you guys got Esther, you got Mary Magdalene. They give you Eve every once in a while, uh, Ruth, you know, and then they just cycle through those four for you. And it's just like, okay, if you're a girl, this is what you get from the Bible. So the rest of the Bible obviously can't be for you, right? Anyways, so you're familiar with it. But what the point is, is that a lot of us, though we are familiar with it, uh, we may not be familiar with the Hebrew version of the story. And the reality of that is, and what Kyle was trying to convey to us, and what we're trying to sit in, and so some of you may have found yourself going like, I've never thought of the story this way before, I've never heard it this way, is that the reality, and this is true of most of Old Testament scriptures, I'm not condoning or nor am I endorsing Game of Thrones, but it is more Game of Thrones than it is VeggieTales, if you had to go one way or the other. Like, it, it is gruesome. There's impalings of people, and there are uh, quite, I mean, just, we'll call it what it is, it's a sex pageant. Uh, it's this beauty pageant that uh, ends in the king's bedroom, and then it makes us uncomfortable, and it should make you uncomfortable, and it's weird, and it's difficult. And so what we do is we enter into the story, and as we enter into the story of Scripture, and as we enter into the story of our lives, and, and the church's life, and the life of those around us, so what we begin to recognize is that things aren't ever as simple as we want them to be. It's complicated. It's messy. There's all sorts of motives and mixed, uh, you know, feelings and emotions in it all. And honestly, I, we had a preaching professor in seminary that he would always say this. And it, uh, in many of the commentaries and different things I've been reading for Esther, they beat this point home, like just again and again and again. And that is that there are no moral heroes in the Bible other than Jesus. And that's part of the point. And this is one of the things I want to say this. I, like, I want to sit in this for a moment. And this is why we gave a whole week to it last week of kind of sitting in that like Esther is not this kind of upstanding role model that oftentimes she's been painted to be. And no one in Scripture in a lot of ways. I mean, you get into Noah, Moses, David. Like, these guys are not, these girls are not these people that you should go, man, like, I hope my life turns out just like theirs. And it's important to think about this and to sit in it because the reality is, is what it's saying is that the church, the people of God, the gospel, is about calling in a broken group of people. It's a mixed bag of yarn, both good and ill all kind of together. And you are no different. 
And so in a culture, in a moment that we find ourselves now, like in the 21st century in Birmingham, Alabama, what we begin to understand and to realize is that we need not panic and hand wring when we see the depravity of the world around us. And that includes what goes on inside the church. And its history is exposed. And we gain a new light and a new understanding of what has happened in the past. But we do mourn it. We do grieve it. We do acknowledge it. And we uh, lament before the Lord and ask for forgiveness. We rend our hearts and our garments, right? As Mordecai will in our chapter. But we need to understand that the beauty of the gospel is that there is a narrative that's big enough to kind of take all that in. And that we don't have to get so worked up and worried about this, but the story of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, they embrace this. They embrace the mess. They embrace the, the mixed up kind of good, bad, neutral characters. And they oftentimes leave it neutral on purpose as not to go one way or the other. And I think that we would be good to kind of see that in our own lives and in a divided culture that we find ourselves in. Just because you vote one way or have certain kind of political or social ideas or leanings does not make you superior or above or less than. And it does not mean that that person is the worst thing that you could possibly imagine them being. Both sides are going to call everybody Nazis because it's like the worst insult we can think of. You know, it's just like nothing could be worse than being that. And so we accuse everybody of being that. Or your, you know, your socialist might be, you know, slightly worse in the modern day or whatever it might be. Whatever deep-seated kind of barb you can throw at someone just because you might tinge that way or lean that way. And yet once you actually get to know the stories of people, you actually get to know their life, their history, you begin to realize, one, they didn't just arrive to that conclusion out of nowhere. It didn't just come out of thin air. They have story and they have experience that leads them there and they have influence from people that meant well and that loved them and encouraged them on both sides and we begin to see that they're much more complex and that they don't fit into the tidy little boxes that the media we use that kind of the loose social media news kind of anything digital that you consume would sort of lead us to believe that they do and so that's what Esther and the Old Testament scriptures are going to do for us if you embrace the kind of messiness of the story, then you begin to realize that it's important that we would read a book like Esther, that it would be included in the canon because it's narrative, it's story. And it gets messy, and Kyle talked about this, like, should it have been in the canon or not? It doesn't talk about God, all that. There are these things around it, but we have to see this, that it's a story and it's begging of you that you would enter into the story because it's begging of you that you would enter into the grand story that is the kingdom of God. Genesis to Revelation, that you're being invited into this meta-narrative and that your story is a part of something bigger than you, outside of you, and you have a place and a role to play in that story and you can be a part of it. And yet what we're going to see in something like Esther is that regardless of the human response, they're good and they're bad, the story continues. And I find that wildly comforting as a pastor, as a Christian in the 21st century, looking at the history of the church. The kingdom will not be thwarted. The good news of the gospel will carry on whether I do everything perfectly as the pastor or not. 
because Jesus is bigger and better than me, and he's bigger and better than you. And as we accept that, we can find ourselves caught up into that story. And that's the invitation of Esther, is that you would be caught up into this narrative, this story, and you would understand it and you would see it. And what it's begging of you alongside of that is to look for and to see the hand of God at work in this story. As complicated and messy and difficult and tense as it seems, as grotesque as it seems at times, as off-putting as it may feel to our modern sensibilities, we're being asked to look for the action of God, to identify it, and to then, in turn, take that and go, okay, this is what we're supposed to be doing in our lives as believers, followers, ones that understand and have experienced the work of God in our lives, is to go, okay, when it doesn't feel like it's happening, if we stop and we look, we understand that this story is still ongoing, and we too are like the story of Esther, and that God's work is happening all around us, and oftentimes we're missing it, because it's in the ordinary, and the mundane, and what seems like just, you know, incidental happenstance is the work of God, doing something, setting something up. And oftentimes we think it's setting up really grand, large, you know, amazing things that we're all going to tweet about, write stories about, and be on the cover of magazines about. But here's my other thing about Scripture. As we're invited into this story and we see the mess and the chaos and that none of these people are really meant to be moral exemplars or role models, what we also see, and this is, uh, I think somebody maybe would be encouraged by this this morning. I know I regularly am encouraged by this. The stories, when God kind of comes out of the sky, when the hand comes down and writes on the wall, when the seas are parted, it is usually because the people are in a very dire situation. And they usually are in a dire situation because something has gone terribly wrong in their response to what God has asked them to do. And so oftentimes, we as believers go around thinking like, oh, we're supposed to have this like moment where God will just show us exactly what to do because that's what happens in Scripture. The reality of it is when God does that, it is usually because the person has gone so far off the path of what he intended them to do, he has to do that to bring them back. But there's quietly, over 10,000 years, all of these other faithful people that follow Yahweh that we never hear stories about. And there's huge gaps, years at times, of these people that we do have stories about where they're faithfully and quietly living their lives, participating in what God would have for them to do what Yahweh has called them to do, practicing their religion and their faith as he has prescribed for them to do. And in doing so, they're being shaped and formed into something that allows them to respond in a certain kind of way when they are asked to respond. So it's this quietness. It's this faithfulness. This is the majority of people in, in the stories. These are the people, I think, that we, we get it wrong, I think, in my mind. Oftentimes we imagine that whatever the new creations and the new heaven looks like when we're all there in eternity and we finally see no longer in a veil or a mere dimly lit, but we see fully and there. We have these, I have these imaginative stories where like I'll finally get to ask Paul or, you know, John, like, hey, why, how did you write the gospel like that? And there'll be this cheering and this excitement because we'll be in the, you know, the, the hall of saints. It'll be the famous people and all these like theologians and all these people that I want to sit with. And I think... On that other side of eternity, I have a suspicion that we'll see them and we'll not really care. And it'll be the old lady that quietly served her family, doing what God asked her to do day in and day out, and no stories were ever written about her, that quietly rocked her children to sleep in the middle of the night, that worked a job while parenting, 
And then, you know, things were hard and life was difficult and she maybe never made it out of that small town where she always wanted to leave. And we'll see her and we'll go, that's a saint. Like, that's someone to follow. That's someone to shape my life around a little bit more. I, I think those are the stories we'll be captivated by. Those will be the stories that people cheer as they enter in. You know, the rush, you imagine like a marathon or entering the stadium as we enter onto that side. And like, those will be the people that everybody's going like, look, that's the person that's done it. And Esther invites us into thinking about things like that. So Kyle sets it up for us last week. Chapters one and two. Esther's in this moment. She finds herself uh, in the king's inner circle now, reigning uh, as his queen because of all the things. And here's the conjecture uh, can go both ways. We, we can paint up some moral picture of Esther and we can say, this is, you know, oh, she's this great person and we, we can supply things to the text. Or we can lean in the other direction and, and supply things. What we know is that she's here. And we don't know her motives all the way through. We don't know how coerced and forced she was into some of these situations. We know she definitely played a part. And she was compliant to some degree. We know that she lacked enough religious uh, fervor or participation of her Jewish principles and practices that she gets this far in years later and is not identified as Jewish. We know she was not like Daniel and his friends that denied the royal food and garb in order to you know, continue to practice their Jewish faith and to be kosher, aligned with the law. This isn't true of Esther. She's here, she's in the court, and there's a lot of mixed things that have gone on here. How much of that she's participated in, you know, we're not sure. How much of that was forced, you didn't say no to the king or without losing your life. We saw that with Vashti, right? These young girls would have been forced into this. And here's the thing, even if you participated in it and you won, it was rare for something like what happened to Esther to happen. Oftentimes you were then relegated to the king's harem. You weren't allowed to have another man. You weren't allowed to have a family. You weren't allowed to see your old friends again. And you just kind of lived inside the palace if he ever decided to call you again at some point in the future. That was what your role was the rest of your life. was kind of live there. But most of the time you just stayed there. Then that was it. So however much of this is, we know it's not a great life, but it is, we don't know. Okay, so she's there. She has power and influence to some degree. She has connections. And yet simultaneously she, you know, is at the will of the king, as everyone was at that point in time. And so there she, she finds herself in this place. And what's important to remember is that this is 50 to 100 years after many of the Hebrew exiles have gone back to Jerusalem, but some stayed. And they found themselves participating in and accustomed to and a part of what was now the norms of the culture and the society around them. And so we oftentimes start to think of Esther and these stories. And I think it's important for us to remember that one of the most identifying or relatable characteristics of this story is where we find ourselves in the United States of America. In the 21st century, Western culture, we don't have to get political about it. We'll say in the Western culture of the 21st century, we oftentimes, uh, I think when we read the text and when we read scripture, we want to identify in some ways with the Jewish people and being in Jerusalem and promised land, all these types of ideas and things, or maybe just kind of a more neutral, but the reality of it is, is we're much like Esther, that we find ourselves in a place that is quite the opposite of Zion, quite the opposite of Jerusalem. In fact, some people have chosen to go back to Jerusalem and lived a much more poultry lifestyle. There were, much more, there were there was no luxury involved in those that went back to Jerusalem. 
They're building walls with manual labor while holding swords to fend off attacks. There, there was no uh, provision. There was no safety net in Jerusalem where these uh, other generations had went back to. But it's kind of cush, comfortable here in Persia. They get to kind of hang out. They get to experience some good things. And their identity begins to get lost because what we have to see in a book like Esther is that there's identity tied to what it means to be the people of God. You guys have heard me if you've been around Mosaic for a while or sometime the last few weeks, months, been on this kick of this idea that we oftentimes are too often atemporal or ahistorical. And in that, oftentimes we are a like kind of geographical. We have no sense or idea of what it means to be human in a space, to be rooted, to be connected, to find ourselves given to a space and a time that we are currently in. And we can kind of distance ourselves from that. We ignore our past and our story and what it means that like there, there's a sense of home and, and present. There's a sense of now and in front of you. There's, there's a sense of a moment that is sacred, that is holy. That's why we bounce from church to church and town to town and friend group to friend group. And if you offend me or make me mad, like we, we just think we can just move in and out. But we miss the fact that what God is calling his people to is to be a part of a people. Esther's as a book, it's wildly Jewish and yet not Jewish at all. Every time Mordecai and Esther get mentioned, they get mentioned as Jewish people. Like the author of the book wants to double down on their Jewishness. And yet what we see, to quote Anna's family, who is jokingly, they will say this about themselves, Jewish. You know, like, yeah, it's a heritage, it's a cultural thing, kind of, but it's not really a practice. It's not, it's not an active thing that they participate in. And so while their Jewishness is constantly being reminded to us or told to us, the realities of what we're reading in the narrative is that it is they're Jewish. And so this thing, it matters because what the book is trying to tell us is that these people are still a part of a people, regardless of their circumstances and what they're doing and practicing. And the truth remains the same of you and I today in the 21st century as New Testament believers, followers of Jesus regardless of the settings and the context that we find ourselves, to follow Jesus is to be a part of a people, then that is his church and his bride. And this matters. To give yourself to a people, to give yourself to a place, a location, to call something home, even if temporary, even if it's just a sojourner, that while you find yourself amongst those people, you would find yourself amongst their habits and their rhythms and their rituals and that you would worship with them and you would partake in their practices with them as short-term as it may be, or as long-term as it may be. But it matters to the way we follow after Yahweh. And so this is going on here. And this group, Esther and Mordecai, it seems, have sort of missed a little bit of this. And there's been a conflating of the two. We are not like Daniel and his friends, though we really want to paint ourselves like that. As modern-day 21st century believers, we identify more with what's going on in Esther, or at least we should. That there's a loss of a sense of identity We've assimilated so much that the two have begun to merge in a way that like what is real and what is not has been confused. Daniel knew. Daniel was very aware of his identity. He did not belong there. Esther, I don't think she would have that same conviction. I think the reality is, is most days that you and I wake up and walk outside of our front doors, we would probably lack that same conviction at times. I know I do. It's much easier for me to be a part of all the people around me, to look like, sound like, talk like, participate in the same things that my neighbors participate in. 
The only reason they may know that I'm a believer is because I have to eventually, at some point, awkwardly tell them in a conversation that I'm a pastor. And then I have to watch them apologize for all the cuss words that they have used in the last six weeks in front of me, you know. And so oftentimes this is true of us. We lack this sense of being a part of this people and what it means to be defined by this over and above all else. And for us, that's the cross and Jesus. And so this is Esther. They're lost in this. She makes it all the way in. She's not identified in any way as Jewish. Now Mordecai tells her to do this, which her Jewish conviction actually would have led her to believe or, or to follow what he has commanded of her. And she does it and then loses all of that Jewish conviction in the midst of it. Let that sink in for a minute and just hold on to it to wrestle with at some point later this afternoon. Because God's going to use that. And so then while this is all happening, this you know, mixed bag of motives and, and anticipation and moral and character and following Jesus, not fo or following Yahweh, not following Yahweh, a whole bunch of stuff starts to just sort of like lay itself out and line up. And what happens is Mordecai uh, begins to hear about a plot that there is a group of people that want to kill the king. And while that happens, Esther has slid into the king's, you know, good graces. And Mordecai just happens to be the cousin of Esther. And so Mordecai says, hey, you should tell the king. And the king says, oh my gosh, this guy's amazing. Thank you so much. And then he elevates Mordecai into a place of like praise and honor, right? And then, meanwhile, there's also this other guy. About four years later, the story moves quick. And we end up in the spot where there's this guy named Haman. And Haman shows up. And Haman gets elevated now. Because this is what kings do, apparently. They just, you know, just whoever's kind of in the moment, especially a king like Xerxes. He's been drinking too much. And he just, oh, yeah, whatever. Let's go for it. I can relate person, not the drinking part, per se, but the personality-wise of what it means to just sort of like give yourself to what you're feeling in the moment. Of just like, well, I was into this and now I'm into this. Okay, move on. Like hobbies, interests sports, whatever it might be, I, I can just sort of go back and forth. This is what Xerxes is doing. He's, now Haman's elevated. So Haman comes and says, everybody's supposed to bow down to me. And Mordecai says, no. And now we get mixed motives and moral and character all over again. Is Mordecai saying this because of his strong Jewish beliefs and convictions? Or is he saying this because he was the guy that was supposed to be praised and honored, and now somebody else is, and he's like, I don't stoop down like that I, I won't bow down to you I was elevated not to mention the fact that Mordecai is uh, believed to be all the way part of the lineage of King Saul and so he would have been known as royalty amongst the Jewish people so I'm sure there was a little a bit of arrogance I could presume use a little bit of conjecture here that would have been difficult for him to uh, deal with if at minimum you know you can use more conjecture and say that he, he actively participated in that arrogance but we know at least that he would have felt that. And so when he's asked to bow down, he says, no. Is it because of religious conviction or is it because of pride? We don't know. Probably a little bit of a mix of both, I would like to think. I know that's how most of the decisions I make, hindsight 2020, I look back and I was like, did I do that because I was wanting to do something good for the Lord or did I do that because I thought it would help me out? And sometimes it's usually both. That I, I longed to do it, and then I hoped that it would help me out. So, like, you scratch my back, Jesus, I'll scratch yours. And that's oftentimes how we think of spirituality. And the Hebrew text is going to say that's not how spirituality and discipleship works. And so Mordecai doesn't bow. So Haman says, okay, we got to take care of this. And he goes to the king. The king's drunk again. And he says, listen, 
there's this group of people and one of them, this guy named Mordecai, is bad. We've got to get rid of all of them. And so Xerxes says, all right, we'll kill them all. And then they cast die, which is the Pur or Purim, which is where the Jewish festival comes from, which is why most people think the book of Esther was written, was to be this text that supports and kind of includes this into their practice and their life of spirituality and their festivals. And so he says, okay, we're going to cast this die, this lot. The time will be set. Again, by chance, it's not tomorrow. It's a pretty good amount of time, almost a year that they get. And so Mordecai finds out about this. And this is where chapter 4 picks up. So I'm going to read quickly, and then we're going to say a few things and land this plane. Okay, so when Mordecai learned that all had been done, the, the lot die casting, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. Note here, side, a pause, uh, whatever you want to call it. This would have been the way the Jewish people were supposed to respond to grief. So we do see here that there is some element of him that is Jewish enough that he still has some of these practices and customs. Also, we have to, again, wrestle with this idea of was Mordecai's Jewishness his heritage, his ethnicity? Was he identified by the way he looked? Or was there some sense of practice enough amongst the Jewish people going on there in Persia still that when Haman found out about what they were doing that they were like, hey those guys are Jewish because we know they do certain things, they eat certain things, they act certain ways. The text doesn't tell us. It's very vague and it's going to continue to be vague. And I think it's on purpose. But we do see some small Jewishness in him, in this. So he goes up to the king's gate in his clothes because no one could go past that. And he's in a sackcloth and they're like, you can't enter. The king only wants happy people. And in every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting, weeping, and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to her, attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So just to understand what happens here in the narrative, he's sad. He's ripped his clothes, he's in ugly clothes, he's put ashes on himself. And Esther basically says to him, in not so many words, hey, clean yourself up, put some normal clothes on, and come into the kingdom and let me talk to you. And he says, absolutely not. I will grieve this moment. I don't want anything to do with you and your king and what goes on inside of there. Like this, my heart has been grieved to such a way that like I will not compromise. So we're starting to see some, some faith and some gumption here come out of him. So they go, they do the thing. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict of their annihilation, which has been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. What Mordecai, what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him. Wait, hold on. I skipped a part. Hathak went back and reported to Esther. There we go. What Mordecai had said. Then she instructed Hathak to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. 
Four years later, we see this, that the king has now, uh, Esther's fallen out of the good graces. His mood swings continue. This is on purpose. This makes Xerxes look like a crazy person. Uh, the author wants you to feel that way. He wants you to get this sense of he's unstable. He's just going to kind of rule at a whim. And that's part of the story to, to bring you into this. Now, if you read some historical context, what we know is that there is a small group of friends that the king usually keeps that are allowed to sort of go in. We can assume that Haman is of that group because Haman seems to have some sort of ear or audience with the king that Esther doesn't. And so he can kind of go in and out, and that's from historical context. So most likely you couldn't go unless you're in this very, very tight inner circle, usually five to seven people. Uh, think of it as like, you know, maybe his cabinet or something, as whatever Haman's position would have been. So she tells Mordecai, I can't do this because I'm not allowed in there, and it's been 30 days. Apparently, the king's not that into her anymore. So Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai. He sent back this answer. Now, listen to this. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, if you have been familiar with the book of Esther and you've heard lots of teachings, this is probably the verse you're most familiar with. This is the one Kyle made a joke about the artwork that we hang on our walls and the things we write. Uh, you know, if you're an athlete, you might write that on your shoe or something alongside of Philippians 4.13. Like this is my moment. I'm the man in the arena, as LeBron writes on his shoes. And so, you know, if goats write things on their shoes, you should too. So, he gets there in this moment. And he says back to her, listen, you, you too will perish. Now, Commentators are uh, divided on this. Is this a veiled threat from Mordecai? Is he saying, like, I will out you? Is he saying, I myself will come and get you? Or is he just saying, this is the providence of God? You choose your own adventure. So what we get, though, and what Esther understands is that there's a fear in this moment. That there's a hesitation. And she realizes that Mordecai is right. That it would be wrong of her in this moment to attempt to do something that does not include the protection or the advocacy of her people. Because what he's saying to her is, he's like, listen, just because you look a certain way or act a certain way or have been accepted, the majority of us in this room are white. So this doesn't mean as much to us. For the few of you that are minorities in this room, you can relate to this. I heard a great pastor, uh, Charlie Dates, he preached a sermon on this. And he talked to his people in the room. He's a pastor in Chicago. And he was looking at him. He said, listen, those of us in this room that have made it out, that have gotten educated in the right schools, that have done these things, that, that, that are in the inner circles, like we know as a result of our like, story and of what it means to be black in America, that like, we're not safe just because we have certain educations and just because we have certain jobs and certain houses and a certain level of status. Our color of our skin, even in the 21st century, like it still marks us in a different kind of way. And we are still prone to the same types of judgments and, and systemic issues that those that haven't gotten out have made it. And he was saying to his church in that moment, in the sermon, he's saying, some of us need to remember that in the way that we advocate for those that have less. And this is one black man to a congregation full of mostly black people. How much more so should it be told to a group of predominantly white people that there is a moment in which you have to understand if there's something we can take from Mordecai 
talking to Esther, that there is a responsibility for those of us that have privilege and that those of us that have means and those of us that have access, that we would use that privilege and that means and that access to advocate for those that have less than us. That is an inescapable truth of the gospel. Politically and socially, we can debate until we're blue in the face exactly how that is done. But if you are going to follow Jesus and you're going to follow and make your life look more like his, the principal aspect of the gospel is that Christ gave up all of his position and his authority and his privilege in order to make sure that those that did not deserve it or need it were given their position, place, and authority at the table of God. And we must do the same. And we see this is baked into the heart of God in a story like Esther. And Mordecai is saying, just because you're in there, just because you, you haven't been identified as a Jew yet, don't think you're safe. Don't think you're above it. Because what he's saying to her is, if none of us are safe, you're not safe. And however that's going to play out narratively, we don't know because it doesn't happen. Because she hears that and she says, okay, I will advocate. I will pursue for my people safety. And I'll pursue for them this ability for them to be preserved and sustained. So Esther sends a reply back to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's a rather stark juxtaposition that happens really quick in chapter 4. She is moved from this idea of, I cannot go, I'll die. And whatever her character, strong or weak, however much she's been coerced, forced into play this part, or however much she could have, you know, stood up, we don't know entirely. But like we said, there is some sense, some agency that she would have had, even if it meant she had to die. And whatever happened there, she chose not to act upon that agency until now. And now the story's going to kind of shift, and Esther is going to become, in the rest of the book, the title character. Up until this point, she's kind of been in a background role. She's now going to become the title character, and Mordecai is even going to take a subsidiary role to her and is going to act out, as verse 17 says, all that Esther commands him to do. And she's going to become our primary role and character that we're going to follow in this narrative. And yet her motives and all of that remain true. The things about her that we wrestle with, that we question, that we're wondering about, they're all still there. And yet she's going to move into this space because of this moment laid before her. I think as millennial, Gen Z, predominantly in this room, all of us in special snowflakes, no one better than the, you know, you're unique, you're, you're, you're you. Go be you. Do, do all this because you can change the world. You can do it. You know, I mean, we're fed this from children's books, from little bitty up. This idea that you can do this. And, and so I think that we want to really attach ourselves to a story like Esther. We want to really look at it and say things to ourselves like, yes, exactly. See, this is the point. Jonathan, I agree with you. All of the ordinary things that we're supposed to be doing, the ordinary ways we're supposed to serve God, what they're going to culminate in for us, and I think why we really want to elevate Esther into this place of role model and moral character that we're all supposed to look like, is that what it'll culminate for us is that we'll have this grand opportunity to enact our agency and to do the will of God, and we too can be heroes. If we're on our best, mostly I think we want to enact all of this and, and do these things and have these moments because what's so attractive about Esther and her story? That she went from rags to riches. She has fame, wealth, luxury, power, beauty. She has servants. 
She has all the things that make her life really comfortable. And if you're really honest with yourself, at least if I'm really honest with myself, that's what I want. Comfort, ease. I want my life to be like Amazon. I say this all the time. Like, get it to me the same day, you know? Like, I don't want to have to work for it. I don't want to have to try for it. Once you start to teach people things, especially small children, you learn very quickly that this is a human, like, innate human instinct. That we want things to be easy and now and quick. And we don't graduate from this very easily. And I think we're drawn to a story and a character like Esther because we're drawn to this idea that we too could serve God faithfully and humbly and in the ordinary, day in and day out, in our poverty and our lowliness so that we too can save a group of people? No, so that we too can act in a moment and be brave and courageous? No, so that we too can have wealth, fame, luxury, power, and servants. And we all go, yes, see, that's what we're supposed to do to follow Jesus. My life too can become everything that I dream and hope it will be. Now, you may not dream of being a queen with servants and spices and, you know, whatever it is, but insert whatever that thing is, this new American dream of ease and comfort and wellness as like this kind of just general, go to California, you know, nobody cares about money or fame, but they care about being perfectly healthy and living forever and drinking avocado smoothies until we're like blue in the face. And the more money you spend on your healthcare routine, the more money or the more ways you show that like you have arrived to a new status and level of being the ultimate human being here on this planet earth and how to live forever, and to maximize and biohack your way into the best life possible. And we long for that, and we think that somehow Jesus is going to offer us that if we just are faithful enough, we just do everything right. And if we exercise and do our yoga and our therapy, which are all great things, and I do all of those things, that then if we just sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus, that then we will have moments just like Esther. But the Hebrew Scriptures are not going to let us take Esther and turn her into a role model and a character that we're supposed to be. The Hebrew scriptures are going to continually paint for us the shortcomings and the failures of all of these Hebrew people that have come because they're setting us up for the only one singular character that we are supposed to model ourselves after. And in that moment and in that space, what we learn is that he is never concerned about his wellness, his status, his fame, his comfort, but that our lives are supposed to be marked by his life, which is to pick up his cross, to pick up your cross and to follow him. And Esther ultimately gets there to some degree. She does make that moment. I think you and I oftentimes, when we are in the right space, we do long for those moments ourselves. We do long for the moment and the opportunity for such a time as this that we think that something in our life is going to matter. That something that I'm doing, that it's not all going to be for naught. That, that I'm not wasting anything here. That something is going to compel me in such a way that I'm going to have my opportunity to make an impact and to change someone's life. We long for that. And I think we long for that from a good place and also from a mixed motive because it's hard to follow Jesus and to look around and go, does any of this matter? My life feels a lot the same as it did, you know, five, six years ago. And it's easy to look around and think that all of the stuff that has happened has been because like I, you know, like I made those choices or it feels like coincidence or I got a bad break or I got a good break or whatever it is. And we look around and we go, does it even matter to follow God? 
And we long and we desire to have things, these moments, these places where we go, oh, that matters. There it is, the impact, the change in someone's life. It matters. And we, we long for a verse like from Esther 4 to be spoken over our lives, that you have been created for such a moment as this. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Is that through Jesus Christ's his death, burial, and resurrection, that that verse is spoken over you every moment that you wake up and every moment that you lay down your head. That the life you live, the way you rock your children to sleep, the old lady I was talking about, I feel that deep in my bones. Regularly moments where I think to myself, my time could be used so much better than this. What am I doing? This feels like a waste of time. Why am I here again? The things that you're called to do day in and day out. I had a conversation with a dad that I love. And he was saying, it's hard for me, man. Like, like I feel like I was so much more spiritual before I had kids and a job and a wife and a family. I was like, my man, the way that you long to be present to your family, the way you long to be near to your children and to love them well, like that's the gospel. Sure, you could pray more. You could do all these other things. I get it. But the way you're present in ordinary life, the way you respond in everyday comings and goings, like that's where this thing happens and it all matters. It's all given to you as gift and it's all participating in the kingdom of God and the story that's bigger than you. And Jesus has come and he said, listen, everything you do matters. And here's the even more beautiful part about it. Everything that's been done to you will be redeemed and it will be given over to the story and it will matter too. Whether Esther's motives were clean or not, what we recognize is a pretty terrible situation she was in. And what the promise of the gospel is, is that that will be redeemed. That Jesus will come and he'll take the stories and the things that have been forced upon you and the terrible hands that you've been dealt. In the ordinary lives, when it feels like God is not present, when it feels like that he has abandoned you and he, he is lost, when it feels like he is silent, that in those moments he is just as present working in the scenes and he's promising you that as your life is lived before him nothing will be wasted it all matters and he's inviting you to a deeper and fuller life with him as the band comes back up this is what we celebrate at the table week in and week out we celebrate the realities of the hope and the goodness of what Christ is offering before us that your life matters that it's not wasted. And it doesn't just matter in a grand sense that you would save uh, political exiles. So if that lands in the cards for you, like, amen. We'll support you, pray over you, and fund you however we can. But it matters day in and day out that you would live faithfully before the Lord and, and see and recognize that His hand is all over your life. He's honoring, praising in those moments, you and him, like there's this relationship, there's this traffic, there's this connection, and you're caught up in this story. And it matters. The heartaches, the hurts, the decisions you've made, the place you find yourself as you come to this table. Like we're all, we, we all find ourselves where we're at now. And there's a real gift in the going like, there's nothing I can do about what was. You know? Yeah, go back, say sorry, make amends, things like this. But whether decisions were made for good or for ill, you're where you are. And the Lord is standing before you and he's saying, I will redeem all of it. And I'll invite you into my story. 
I'll bring you along and you get to participate because you have that choice. You, you can participate in the kingdom. As you come to the table, you're reminded of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that gives you the possibility and the, that like access to that story again and again. And your life, your story is pulled into his story and the story of redemption and of grace and of kindness. To sit quietly with children, with roommates, as a student, when it feels like it's all being wasted, and to be given hope, to mourn and to grieve when we need to mourn and to grieve, to, to, to cry over what breaks the Lord's heart, to celebrate, to dare to hope, to long for joy in the midst of the life that you find yourself in, instead of giving yourself over to cynicism and rather not trying or participating or engaging. Instead of giving yourself over to the luxuries and the ease and going, that would be too difficult. You dare to believe that the difficult and tumultuous moments of your life will lead to something more profound. You embrace hardship and sacrifice in order to experience a joy that is far deeper than anything you can have come to on your own. This is the invitation of the gospel. And this is what we celebrate as we come to the table. So I'll invite you to come and to take a piece of the bread in the cup and hold on to those elements. Go back to your seats after the band's done playing this song. I'll come back up and I'll lead us in the reception of those. And receive in this moment the true gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The access to this story, this invitation into it, and the redemption of yours as you partake in it. Receive the bread and the cup that is the promise of God's provision and his forgiveness, his substance, his way for you forward. Meditate. Ask the Lord to reveal and to show what it means that you would find yourself in your story participating in his. Come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.